for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good fortune or a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you truly are our delight and our reward. Lord, we do pray, as the song said, that you would make our hearts believe it. Father, for what other reward can we say will never fail us, will never leave us or forsake us, will never be lost or stolen or tarnished, will never be separated from us at death. Lord, You are everything. You would make our hearts believe. We pray for Pastor Toby as he comes that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would grant your spirit to us, the hearers, Lord, that the truth would penetrate our hearts and change our minds and thus our lives. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Before we launch in, I do want to remind you of a couple of things. If you are a member of Gray Road, we have a members meeting tonight. Um, it is the time in which we eat together, so bring food. We won't be able to eat together without food. Bring, uh, we come together, we eat together, we think about what God is doing, ministry opportunities that lie ahead of us. In this particular night, we will be looking at uh, the budget for 2020, so I encourage you uh, to come uh, tonight at 5.30 uh, down in the gym so that we can have that time, that family time together. If you are not a member but you would be interested in learning more about Gray Road, two weeks from today on February 9th, we will begin our next Discovering Church membership class. Uh, it'll be just down the hallway down here, but um, during the Sunday school hour, which will be at 9 a.m., 
And uh, so I would encourage you uh, to come. Coming to the class is not a commitment to join. It is simply a commitment to learn about the congregation as you consider whether this might be the place uh, God would have you worship and serve. I have good news this morning. Since uh, for several months now we have been in search of a new principal for Gray Road Christian School, and Lord willing, we are reaching the finish line, which is a great thing. Our candidate, Chris Hardy, his picture will be up on the screen, and his wife, Naomi, visited a few weeks ago with their six children. It's one way to uh, grow the children's ministry is that to make sure when you hire a new staff member, they come with uh, a flock uh, of their own. Uh, so, they visited a few weeks ago. Next Sunday morning, uh, Chris and Naomi will be here, and we're going to have a combined Sunday school where Chad will walk us through the search process, how we've gotten to this point, um, and, Chad, and Chris will take some time to introduce himself. It will not be a full hour of Sunday school time because we want to leave time for you as individuals to meet Chris and Naomi and be able to interact with him. And also, Leah will be making donuts, so if nothing else, you should come for that. Uh, well, at least you said she is. We're still doing that, right? All right, good. Now that I've said it out loud, it's been live-streamed, Leah. You can't change your mind now. <laughs> All the people who watch on the live stream are making plans. Hotels are filling up <laughs> at the thought of coming here for Leah's donuts. <laughs> But I want to take just a moment to thank uh, Chad McFadden and the team, Isaiah Helms, Carol Morell, Janice Schaefer, Polly Shingleton, and Justin Willis. They have put in hours of, of meeting, hours of resume reading and praying and discussing and decision-making to get us to this point. And I'm thankful for them. And uh, though she is not here, I would thank publicly also Tammy Gannon in the way that she has been so helpful in working out all of the logistical, detailed, financial things that need to be that need to happen in order uh, for this uh, to be to, to to happen. So can we can we just thank them publicly right now? Thank you so much. For the last few weeks, we've been thinking about honoring God with His gifts. That God gives us the time we have, God gives us the talents, abilities, and gifts we have, that God gives us the money we have. And as His people, our goal should be to honor Him with all of His gifts. And we finish that series today by turning to 1 Timothy 6. Timothy, as you may remember, is the Apostle Paul's mission partner. He traveled with him, and now he's been assigned to Ephesus to oversee the church. <clears throat> and Paul writes this letter to him, according to chapter 3, verse 15, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, part of that behavior is to keep the church free from false teaching, which Paul says uh, basically that in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, "...remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." The church, after all, is the pillar and buttress of God's truth, meaning we are to hold up the truth for all to see and hear, and we are to keep it up. And what Paul's addressing is the fact is that there are some who would tear down what we are supposed to hold up. 
And he actually begins this section that way, verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, look at what these people are like. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Nothing. I mean, that is a strong statement. You contradict the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ, you know nothing. Nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. I mean, apparently these guys were sitting in coffee shops jawing a lot, right? They went to McDonald's for the senior coffee, and they were, and they were loved to talk about controversy and loved to talk about quarrels, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. But even more than that, even while trying to tear down the church, they are trying to take from the church. While they're trying to take down the church, they're trying to take from the church. They want to get rich off of all this work. Did you see the last phrase in verse 5? Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, in the rest of this text, Paul's trying to guard Timothy and the church from following in their pattern, particularly their, fall, their pattern of greed. He wants them to be godly in the realm of money, to have the right view of money, to make the right use of money. I take the point to be this, that we must think about and use money in ways that please God. That's what Paul wants Timothy to do. That's what he wants the church to do. So let's think about what Paul says under two headings, all right? First, avoid idolatry. Now, some of you, it being the end of the NFL season, may be reaching for your red challenge flag at this point and want to throw it and say, now, wait a second. I listened to what Brian read. The word idolatry was not used anywhere in there. So what are you talking about? Well, fair enough. Now, we'd have to begin by saying, in other places in particular, like in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul talks about covetousness, greed, materialism, the desire for more and more, and he equates it with idolatry. So he says in Colossians 3, 5, "...put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry." You see, an idol is anything that takes the place of God as supreme in our lives. That can happen moment to moment, and that can ho happen in a whole season of life. Something that's not God, being our functional God, lowercase g, determining how we live, how we think, how we speak, and how we act. And I'm convinced that Paul wants Timothy and us to avoid making money into an idol in our lives. So I want to convince you that that's what he has in mind by showing you three things that he basically says. Are you ready? Good. I hope you are. If you're napping, you know, try to stay at it. But if you're ready, here we go. The first thing he says is don't make money the goal of your life. You see what one of the things that's wrong with the false teachers? They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. You see that? Let me tell you this. If one thing is the means of getting something else, then the something else is what you really want. If you invest your money in the stock market, and what you, what you really want is what? The return. 
That's what you're after. You're not just investing for the sake of investing. You're investing for the sake of a return. And what these folks are saying is that you just invest a little godliness when you're around, and here's what you get back. Money. That's what they're after. I want you to imagine someone comes to my office. A man comes to my office, and because of his pattern of sin, he's lost everything in life. He's lost his wife. He's lost his career. I mean, he's lost everything, and he knows he must change. So he commits to change, and he begins to make some changes in his life, but the thing he notices along the way is that he's not getting back the life that he once had. And he comes to me one day, and he says, I've tried God's way, and it doesn't work. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that what he really wants, what matters most to him, the big goal in his life is to get that life that he wanted back. And if a right relationship with God or doing whatever it is you tell me to do, Mr. Counselor, if that will get me my life back, that's what I really want. He only wants God if God will give him the life that he wants. God then becomes a means to something that he considers greater. And these false teachers believe that godliness, or what they call godliness, is basically a means. It's just the rainbow, okay? It's a rainbow, but at the end of the rainbow is the real pot of gold, a literal pot of gold. This is what prosperity preachers do in our day, isn't it? They turn godliness into a means, a path. If you will be godly, if you will have enough faith, if you will do this, if you will do that, if you will abide by these principles, then this is your path to what you really want out of life, wealth, health, greater influence over others. Now, lest we, spend all, lest we spend all our time wagging our finger at the prosperity preachers and at the false teachers in Timothy's church, we need to know that when we see godliness as a means to something else, when we see pleasing God as a means to something else, then God has been usurped and an idol now sits on the throne. Don't make money your goal. He also says, don't make money the object of your love. Verse 9, those who, he talks about those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Desiring to be rich, loving money will not satisfy. It's like drinking the ocean. The more you drink it, the thirstier you get. You will never, never be satisfied. And friends, the love of money knows no economic class. Did you know that? The rich are convinced that the poor mostly struggle with the love of money, and the poor are convinced that the rich mostly struggle with the love of money. But the fact of the matter is, those with money may love money, 
holding it with a clenched fist, looking for every way, sinful or not, to get it, to protect it, to keep it, to never let it go. And those without money may love money, believing it'll solve all their problems, daydreaming of what it could do for them, plotting ways, sinful or not, to get their hands on some. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. John Stott, in his commentary on this text, has a pretty helpful list of evils. I just want to read it for you. Here are some samples. Ready? Selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury and robbery, envy, quarreling and hatred, violence and even murder, marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography sales, blackmail, the exploitation of the weak, the neglect of good causes, and the betrayal of friends. And it seems that this year we could just simply add tax evasion. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil because you know what you must do to love money, don't you? You know what you must do today if you're going to love money. As one who professes faith in Jesus Christ, you know what you must do in order to love money. You must turn your heart away from God. No one can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and hate the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can serve God and money. Now that sounds ludicrous until I put that same idea into a different context. A married person who commits adultery continuously and says, oh, but I still love my spouse. How many people are buying that one? That that's what love looks like? No. Because in order to commit adultery, you must turn the back on the one that you made a covenant with. And to love money, you must turn your back on the one who made a covenant with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must, because you can't love both. So don't love it. And then he says, don't make money the source of your hope. Did you notice that in verse 17? He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, hope is a word that basically speaks about expectation of good in the future. And the world uses the word hope all the time, but it uses it basically as a wish. I hope things get better. I hope things turn around. I hope so-and-so is elected to such-and-such. But Christian hope is not a baseless wish. It is a certainty. It is grounded in the historical reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that, Peter will say, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, how do we come alive to that living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christian hope is supernatural. You can't just stir it up. You can't just make yourself hope in the way the Bible wants. The God has to be active in your life. It has to be through the resurrection of Jesus that you actually have a living hope. And so Paul warns us against shifting our source of hope away from the Lord 
and on to wealth, whether it be the money in my bank account, the assets I own, the 401k I have, or the money I wish I had in my bank account, the assets I wish I owned, the 401k I wish I had. Don't do it, Paul says. It's uncertain. It's unsatisfying. Riches cannot be trusted. Remember what it says in Proverbs 23? This is wonderful. It's so, Proverbs is just so down to the earth, isn't it? Listen. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, what happens? It's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Anybody be able to testify to that? That you thought you had some money, but apparently it grew wings and it flew away. It sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? You look at it, you're like, all right, we're good. A week later, where'd it go? A day later, an hour later, one target trip later. Where did it go? Sprouted wings, flew away. I mean, we even sang it this morning, didn't we? Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. More than any riches, Jesus is better. And what do we need God to do? Make my heart believe it. Setting our hope on the things of this world, whether it's money or other people or better circumstances, is to set our hope on sand that will erode under our feet. I mean, they are, these are gifts, good gifts the Lord gives. The Lord gives us power to make wealth, according to Deuteronomy 8. But our hope must be in the giver and not in the gifts. So now add that up in your mind. Don't make money your goal. Don't make money the object of your love. Don't make money the source of your hope. But what would the Bible teach us? God is the goal of your life. God is the primary object of your love. God is the only true source of hope. To allow money to take its place then is to make money an idol. And Paul would want us to avoid idolatry. Instead, and secondly, honor God. Honor God. This is the goal of the Christian life, isn't it? Including how we think about and use money. So how do we honor God with the gift of money? How, what does he tell Timothy? What does he tell this church? Well, again, let's just think about what he says. The first thing that just jumps out at us, isn't it, is that we need to stay content. Stay content. Godliness, verse 6, with contentment is great gain. Now, we'll get to godliness, but Paul is pressing us to be content, to be satisfied with what we have, to, be, to understand that what we have and what we don't have from one moment to the next falls within the sovereign decision of God. Hear that again. What we have and what we don't have at any moment in life falls under the sovereign decision of a good and merciful and glorious God who has saved us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to how dangerous it is then to not be content. 
Resisting contentment is not primarily a statement about the difficulty of my circumstances. Resisting contentment is primarily a statement about what I think about God right now and whether He is good and whether He is enough and whether He loves me and whether He is really my God at this point. That's how dangerous it is. That's why we have to stay content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I mean, be con- stay content because nothing is permanently yours anyway, right? Job said it, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall I return. What a striking reminder, is it, that we brought nothing into the world. All these children that we ood and awed over up here, they came with nothing, no food, no clothing, no college fund. They came with nothing, and we will leave with nothing. No matter how much stuff is crammed into our casket, we will leave with nothing. Nothing. We brought nothing to this life. We take nothing from this life. So be content. Stay content. Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Isn't it interesting that these are the very things that Jesus told His disciples that they need not worry about it because God will provide. Remember that in Matthew 6? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Boys, don't worry. Stay content. God knows what you truly need. Stay content. He also tells them to pursue godliness. They go in hand in hand in verse 6, don't they? So stay content, pursue godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But this becomes even clearer when you get to verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, he's talked about desiring the, rid, to be rich and love of money. And then he said, then he looks at Timothy. He, he kind of, he's got blinders on. He's looking straight at Timothy, looking at him in the face. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. Now, it may seem that Paul has suddenly taken a hard left and he is no longer talking about money. But I want to make the argument that while he may have in his mind more than money, he does not have things other than money in his mind. Well, how can you know that? Well, let me help convince you. Verses 9 and 10 are about what? Go ahead, look at it. What's it about? Call it out when you know it. Money, right? Verses 17 and following, what's it about? And the rich, what they do with their money, right? So we got money before, we got money after. But not only that, did you notice the conjunction that, that, that's at the beginning of verse 10? Verse 11, I mean. But, 
He says, those who, those, who want to, those who desire riches fall into temptation. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he gets to verse 11. He says, but you, O man of God, flee what? These things. What is the these things? The desire to be rich. The love of money. That's what Timothy is to flee. So think about that with this in, think about this with that in mind then. Paul tells him to flee all of these things, even when Paul tells Timothy to take hold of eternal life in verse 12. Can I show you something? If you're using the Pew Bible, you just turn that page, but look at verse 19. Look what Paul's going to tell the rich. So that they may do what? Take hold of that which is truly life. In the original language, those are the exact same words. Take hold. Timothy, you take hold of eternal life. All you folks out there who have means, you take hold of that which is truly life. So I don't believe Paul's changing his tune here. What Paul wants Timothy to do and what he wants the church to do is live differently than the false teachers with their false doctrine and their false living and their idolatrous pursuit of money. So he says, flee those things. Instead, pursue righteousness. Be righteous in your attitude toward money. Be God-honoring, godly in your attitude toward money. Walk by faith and not by the money and goods that you see around you. Pursue love, love of God and love of others, and not love of money. Be steadfast. Don't throw in the towel because the world is alluring, Timothy. And be gentle with people. Don't you dare see them as a means like the false teachers do. Don't you be harsh with them until they give you their money. All those words mean so much more than that, but they fit what Paul is saying. And then fight the good fight of faith. Isn't that helpful? It's not going to be easy, Timothy. This whole not loving money thing, it isn't a piece of cake. It isn't, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips. It's hard. you got to put on the armor of God. you got to know what's true and what's right. you got to have up your shield of faith. You got to have your helmet of salvation. You got to have the gospel of peace. You got to take the word of God and the spirit, and you got to go into every day knowing that the enemy would love to hurl some money at you to take you down. It doesn't look like a fiery dart, but it is. It will take you down, Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. Don't take hold of riches, Timothy. Don't grasp for the things of this world. Cling to eternal life. Take hold of it. Now, doesn't it seem odd when I read that, right? Take hold of eternal life. You say, that sounds great. That sounds like an evangelistic invitation. But it's not. Do you remember who's reading this? Timothy. Doesn't that strike you as odd that Paul would tell Timothy to take hold of eternal life? I mean, isn't Timothy a Christian already? Yes, he is. Well, what's going on here? I believe what's going on here is that Paul is calling Timothy to persevere, to take hold of that which is already his. In the same way that Paul says in Philippians 3, he 
presses on toward the goal of the high calling in Jesus Christ, not because he can earn it, but because that has been given to him and he is going to do everything he can to hang on to it and cling to it. It means the same thing that Jude says in the end of Jude, right? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep going. Don't turn back. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, since therefore the the children share in flesh and blood. He him. Oh, sorry. That's verse. That's chapter two. Verse, chapter three. Verse fourteen. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Keep going. Keep persevering. Take hold of the eternal life that is yours. Press toward the goal that God guarantees you'll get to. Keep going. If you will, stay steady. Fight the good fight. Flee the love of money. Take hold of eternal life. In other words, pursue godliness. Godliness with contentment, Timothy, is great gain. Godliness pleases God. So he says, stay content. He says, pursue godliness. And he says, be generous. Now look at verse 17 and after. He's talking to the rich. By the way, this good confession, uh, uh, he uses the same word for Timothy's good confession as he does for Jesus' good confession. What was Jesus' good confession before Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. What is Timothy's good confession? The kingdom to which he belongs is not of this world. He no longer belongs to this world. And so he goes on to tell him in verse Uh, 14, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Well, now those words will perk you up if you've been reading 1 Timothy the whole way through, won't it? Free from reproach? Boy, that sounds awful familiar. Can you go back in the letter and read a little earlier? Didn't he say something about reproach when it came to elders? And what is one of the ways that the elders demonstrate being above reproach? They are not a lover of money. And what about deacons? They are not greedy for dishonest gain. Even in the keeping the commandment unstained and staying free from reproach, the love of money is what must be shunned. You cannot keep God's commandments unstained. You cannot be free from reproach and love money. You simply can't do it. So pursue godliness. And then be generous. Here we go. Now we're finally getting to be generous. So verse 17 reminds us at the the end that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul does say that God gives us everything to enjoy, and I think we actually need to hear that. We need to be reminded that God's gifts are not merely utilitarian. They are not just things to get the job done. They are enjoyable. We have taste buds that light up for delicious food. We have eyes that love to take in the colors of clothing, the architecture of homes. We enjoy 
these possessions that God gives. We can enjoy the fireplace in our home, a new can of paint on the wall, the recreation we get, even the phone with which we can stay in contact with our friends and family around the world. We can enjoy that. Now, we must enjoy them without idolizing them, but we can enjoy them. God gave them to us to give us a measure of enjoyment. But I think Paul transitions so quickly, I think there's a greater joy he wants us to see than just to enjoy things for ourselves. So he says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is to the rich in particular. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. This is why it's important, by the way, to to read the whole of the verse and not just say, they are to be rich, and not finish the phrase. God wants you to be rich, rich people. God wants you to be rich in good works. Generous, ready to share. Now what he's saying is don't Don't make it your aim to abound in stuff, abound in good works. And when he says be generous, do you know what he's literally saying? Be good at giving. Be really, really good at it. Do not fall behind the curve. Develop this skill. Sharpen it. Sharpen your eyes so that you see needs more quickly instead of passing over them. Don't go through life looking at crowds like you looked at textbooks in college, right? You're just skimming for the highlights. Look at every person. Look for every need. And then exercise your hands and loosen the grip on the money that could very well meet the need that God has put in front of you. Bypass lunch so you can help someone else. Be ready to share. Now, generosity, quite frankly, doesn't come in the amount of dollars given so much as in, quite frankly, I mean, honestly, the percentage given. This is what happens in the Gospels, isn't it? In Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow with two small coins put it in. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. He doesn't say that because Jesus is not good at mathematics, okay? That he can't do greater than, less than. He tells us what he means in verse 4, for they all contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So, generosity is measured more in sacrifice than it is in the sum of the dollars given. So, the ongoing ministry of local churches depends on generosity. Tonight, in our members' meeting, we will come together. We will look at the budget for 2020. Uh, Church budgets are basically pipe dreams without the people of God just staying faithful and generous and giving willingly and cheerfully and generously, proportionately throughout the year. Because lots of things depend on that generosity, don't it? The support of those who serve you full-time depends on it. The 
facilitation of ongoing ministries in our church depends on it. The support of missionaries around the world depends on it. Even the keeping in good repair of this building depends on it. We may bemoan the percentage of our budget that has to go to something like that, but it's either that or the building falls apart. Or we just say, well, we can do this somewhere else, so let's do that. So we have all kinds of choices, but the fact of the matter is, is that some of that budget goes to do those things. And it all depends on generosity. It all depends on all of us being generous with what God gives. Quite frankly, if you do decide to go to lunch today and you go somewhere where somebody is serving you, uh, their livelihood is in part dependent on generosity. My youngest brother has waited tables for years, and he once told me he really hates working on Sundays, particularly at lunchtime, because church people can be so rude and stingy. Now, his sampling is not the entire world, but that's not an uncommon story from servers that I have known. Brothers and sisters, servers at restaurants who have to work on a Sunday should arm wrestle over who gets to because the Christians are coming and they're kind and they're generous. Rightly understood, the poor depend on the generosity of the rich. Not a forced generosity. That's not actually generosity, by the way. Forced generosity is not generosity. It's taxation. Not a cynical generosity, but a generosity from the heart that knows that I have freely received and so I freely give. You see, freely giving at great cost to oneself is the mark of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 2 Corinthians 8 says, Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up the riches of glory in order to come and live in the poverty among us, so that through His death and resurrection we might be rescued from the poverty of our sin and given the riches of His glory. In 1774, Charles Spurgeon said this, and I can't, I, was, I can't even summarize it. I'm just going to read it to you. Our Lord Jesus Christ is so rich in grace that He keeps an open house all day and all night long, and come and welcome is written over His palace gates. Though millions of sinners have already come, the banqueting table is as loaded as it ever was. He has as much grace and mercy to distribute as He had 1,800 years ago. My Master is so rich that He wants nothing from you. You need not bring a rag with you. He will cover you from head to foot. So mighty is His mercy that no case did ever exceed His power to save or ever will. That is the generosity of our God in Jesus Christ. And if you, if you have not been the generosity, that you have not been the recipient of that generous grace of God in Jesus Christ, today you can turn from the poverty of your sin, which will end you in the debtor's prison of hell forever, and you can be set free from that debt through the blood of Jesus Christ if you will trust Him, if you will come to Him, if you will embrace Him, 
and all that He is and all that He offers. He who gave His Son for us, He will also with Him give us all things. The generosity of God awaits. And it is guaranteed for all who turn from their sin and trust in Him. Now, why does all this matter? Why does it matter that we avoid idolatry? Why, why does it matter that we honor God? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, if money is our idol, we'll be trapped. We'll have no spiritual sense. We will drown in a sea of ruin, sinking to the bottom in destruction. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus said that the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the Word so that some people actually believe that they have faith, but they don't because it's been strangled by their wallet. And so Paul says those who love money are pierced with many pangs. You ever been somewhere where they put an animal on a spit and they turn it? That is the picture. Those who love money are the one on the spit, and we are being turned over the fires of hell, and ruin and destruction are certain to come. But if we flee the love of money, and we honor God in these things... Paul says that we are storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Not, not storing up treasure for self, but treasures in heaven. Not grabbing for what people tell us is life, a life built on material gain, but, but taking hold of that which is truly life, life given by Jesus, eternal life. Why does it matter? Well, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, then sings my soul. My money, God to me. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Then God said to him, Fool. Not primarily a word of a lack of intellect or a lack of wisdom so much as a lack of morality. Fool. This night... Your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Those who store up treasure for themselves, desiring riches, loving money, will enjoy them for a season. Don't lie to yourself. They will enjoy them for a season, but they will face ruin and destruction when their soul is required of them, and they will have no answer as to why they gave their lives to something so fleeting, so temporal, 
so uncertain. Those who are rich toward God, though, who know the riches of His love and grace, who stay content, who pursue godliness, who are generous, who are all these things, those who in Jesus Christ do these things, store up treasure in heaven, and they will enjoy those riches forever. That's why it matters. It matters because eternity is on the line, because only one or the other can have your heart. If you have spent your life loving money and even thinking that you love God too, it is not too late to wake up. You can wake up right now by the grace of God. Turn from that uncertain idol and turn to the one true God whose rich, eternally glorious grace will embrace you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before You, and we are surrounded by things that would fuel our desire for money. We are surrounded with a world that is head over heels in love with money and all that it can buy believing that we deserve one thing or another. And we swim in this water of materialism and love of money, and so often we don't even see it ourselves. And we ask for Your grace to see it, not even primarily in the world around us, but in the heart within us. Help us to hate the love of money. Give us grace that we will not desire to be rich in this world, but desire to be rich toward You. Help us to not make money the goal of our life, the object of our love, or the source of our hope. Help us instead to honor You by staying content, pursuing godliness, and being generous. Help us by Your grace and with Your Spirit's help to store up for ourselves treasures as a good foundation for the future and to take hold of that which is truly life. And now in the name of the One who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. In the name of Jesus Christ our Savior, we ask all of these things. Amen.